One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now. Your inside look into the best of vice. It's Friday, November 2nd. I'm Sophie Casas. Today we're going behind the scenes of a new Vice documentary series called Innocence Ignored, about life after wrongful convictions. Plea bargaining system is really a national crisis right now. DNA and everything cleared me. I proved my innocence. And now they want me to take a plea where somebody's been convicted. They've done 10, 20, 30 years in prison. We have DNA proof and other kinds of new evidence of innocence, and still people are being asked to plead guilty. I did like 24 years. I've been in prison for 26 years. 29 years for a crime I didn't commit. 28 years, seven months, three weeks, and two long days I spent in prison. More than 2,000 wrongfully convicted people have been exonerated in the U.S. since 1989. That's more than 19,790 years of human life lost needlessly to wrongful conviction. Vice's new series, Innocence Ignored, aims to tell the stories of those who had their voices silenced and to examine the flaws in the system that made these tragedies possible. Today, we've got Vice News Editor Matt Taylor speaking with two of the producers on the project, Lydia Randall and Lara Fernandez. Hi, Lydia. Hi, Matt. Hi, Lara. Hi, Matt. You two just published a short collection of videos, short films, about wrongful conviction and exoneration and a lot of the issues surrounding those two things. Things that I think a lot of Americans have sort of a vague conception of, but don't know what it looks like minute to minute, hour to hour, and especially don't know what it's like after the sort of prison part of that nightmare is over. I know this was a collaboration with the Innocence Project, which is one of the groups that's kind of most involved in trying to deal with this problem. Can you just talk a little bit about what the films focus on and what you sort of set out to do in general with the project? Yes, yeah, so wrongfully convicted people make up approximately 5% of the prison population in the U.S., which comes out to about, it's up to more than 100,000 people. So that's a significant number of people, and so we became interested in what are some of the main issues in this system? Like, why is this happening? I think any any rational person would say that one wrongfully convicted person is, is one too many. So the fact that we're looking at more than 100,000 is shocking. So we approached the Innocence Project and we said, you know, we want to do some longer pieces that sort of delve into the issues around this. And we asked them, what are the issues that come across your desk the most that you're seeing in these cases? We talked back and forth and we, we narrowed it down to, to four, which are by no means all encompassing of, of the range of issues that we see in wrongful conviction cases. But we decided we wanted to look at the issue of plea deals 
I think 95% of cases uh, plead out rather than going to trial. Uh, compensation, reintegration, and the issue of forensic science being used in trials. So we made four pieces, Lara and myself and our um, other producer, Justin, trying to delve into those issues through the lens of personal stories. If you're speaking to a, a small child or someone from another country that has a less dystopian criminal justice system than our own, what would you say by way of summarizing how this happens and why it happens? I think it's not really one issue. It's, you know, it's several flaws in the system, like prosecutorial misconduct. Um, sometimes um, eyewitness identification is not accurate. And people tend to believe that, you know, forensic science or a witness will be accurate. And sometimes it's not. So someone can just end up wrongfully convicted. And I mean, these are all issues that you know, that can have someone going to jail and being wrongfully convicted. But I think mass incarceration is definitely one of the bigger issues in in wrongful convictions. I wonder why you thought it was important to talk to the public and, and show the public what's going on with wrongful conviction right now. The current administration is much more hostile in broad strokes to the idea of reforming the criminal justice system, at least compared to the Obama White House. Is it just that this is still a problem and we have to not forget about it? Is it that some cities or states or, or, or activists are trying to change it? What was it about this moment, do you think, that makes wrongful conviction important to focus on? You know, I think I mentioned before, 5% approximately of the U.S. prison population are wrongfully convicted. So it is an incredibly important issue. Um, but it is it is one issue in, in our criminal justice system. Mass incarceration as a whole is something that we need to focus on and tackle. Um, you know, especially you mentioned this administration. There have been significant changes to the way um, that this administration deals with forensic science, for example, and the oversight of that field. And so I think when you're talking about why now, because we've disbanded commissions, right, that were there to include independent scientists, that were there to uh, include that level of of oversight. And forensic science, um, forensic evidence, I should say, is included in, in many, many criminal cases and criminal trials. So really important to be looking at it now within the context of kind of losing some of that oversight. I think thanks in part to the fact that there's been a sort of explosion in the last five years or so of true crime podcasts and films and documentaries and television shows, a lot of Americans probably have some vague idea of how bad this problem might be. They might have some conception of wrongful conviction in the abstract or even have a, a case or a few cases that they have some familiarity with. But you learned a lot more about this problem and, and tell your viewer a lot more about this problem than what you might learn or glean in a TV show or podcast. And I wonder if there's one thing, one fact or one practice or, or commonality that jumped out to you in the production or filming or, or post-production of this project that just was most outrageous or shocking about how wrongful conviction and exoneration work. I think to me what stood out the most is the fact that it happens way more than we want to believe. You know, some people think it's only the staircase case or making a murder or you know but it's just a lot of people in a lot of cases so even when we were giving some characters 
by the Innocence Project, it was hard for us to choose, okay, so who should we talk to? Because there were just so many people with so many cases. So I think what stood out the most to us is that it's a recurring issue and some people think it's, you know, one case and it's not. It's really, it happens really often. And I think something else that stood out to me is, and it was common, I guess, throughout each character from our pieces was how positive they are. They're not bitter. They don't want to, of course, they want to, you know, held people accountable for you know taking 30 years out of their life but they're definitely just they want to move on and some of them are you know trying to change the law or you know they just don't want this to happen to other people but they're really positive instead of you know being upset with the system and one of the issues you focus on in one of your short films is compensation essentially what kind of financial payment or support might be provided by the state when people are finally recognized to be innocent or not guilty. And I was shocked by how much it varies. Obviously, we all know that Americans set a lot of their laws by at the state and local level, but I wonder if you could talk at all about just how much it varies and whether, as sort of sick or perverse as it might sound, there's a, a state where it would be least bad or or ideal even if you're going to be wrongfully convicted for a crime you didn't commit, to at least look ahead to some form of remuneration when you get out. To your previous question, I think actually that was one of the things that stood out to me the most, actually, was how how much of a difference it makes where you were incarcerated. Right now, if you're wrongfully convicted and you are exonerated, you want to be in Texas because Texas has some of the strongest compensation laws in the country. Actually, a lot of southern states have been some of the most progressive in terms of this compensation legislation. We went to two different states in the course of our reporting. We went to Kansas, which recently passed what will become, depending on how the rollout happens, the gold standard right of um, compensation legislation. It provides, I want to say, $65,000 per year of wrongful incarceration, maybe 25000 for year on parole, for every year on parole. And then social and medical services. And it's little things like that. Like, after that, we went to Indiana. And in Indiana, there is no compensation legislation whatsoever. So if you're exonerated in Indiana, say you've been in prison for 25. Or our, our character had been in prison for 26 years. His name's Timmy Donald. And he, over that time, had accrued something like $250 through working in prison. When he left, he wasn't even given that money on his his exit from the prison. It took them, I think, two months to, to mail him that money. So he had nothing. He had no medical services, no social services. If he didn't have a family to put him up, like, where is he supposed to go? So I think we don't consider that actually in a lot of these states that have no legislation set up, you are better off being paroled. You're better off being paroled because you are set up with a parole officer. You're set up with, um, you know, maybe maybe some housing benefits, maybe some medical services. Yeah, so I think that is something that we really, really need to look at because it, it, it doesn't seem, I don't think it would seem fair to anyone that you're wrongfully convicted for something. You come out of prison and not only do you have to kind of reintegrate after missing out on 25 years in society, you are not given any help from the state that put you there in the first place. And I think anyone could agree that that's grossly unfair. One of the most disturbing episodes focuses on a man who was framed 
for the kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder of his sister-in-law. In and of itself, that's the stuff of one of the most horrifying stories a lot of us might ever hear. But we also find out when he's released that he's in a particularly difficult situation. And I wonder if you could talk any more about the details of his case and what he had to deal with even after this incredible nightmare was foisted on him by his own relative. I mean, first of all, just the details of that case are pretty shocking um, and incredibly tragic. What ended up happening and the reason that Floyd was eventually exonerated, um, there was no DNA tying him to the crime at the time. It was based on his brother's testimony and testimony from relatives. And uh, his brother eventually committed suicide and left a suicide note that um, confessed to the murder and gave details, I think, of a bullet casing um, and the location of which they had never been able to figure out before. Um, So that and um, exculpatory DNA evidence meant that Floyd was able to walk free. In terms of compensation, he walked out into Kansas, which I think at the time had either not fantastic compensation legislation or no compensation legislation. I'm actually not sure which it was. But um, his case and the case of a a fellow exoneree, um, Lamont McIntyre, became really pivotal in pushing legislators to make these changes. So I think, I mean, again, it speaks to the importance of like highlighting these issues is that like they can actually have real world change. Like his lawyers were incredible in pushing his case, getting him in front of legislators, talking about why they need to compensate this man for the for the years that he's lost. So Kansas then eventually did pass the the law, um, which compensates for what we were talking about earlier. Floyd was at the bill signing with the governor. And, you know, meeting Floyd in person, you will never find a person, you will never meet a man who is more, um, like, he he's chosen to forgive and move on with his life and he doesn't mean that he doesn't want to hold people accountable but his his whole um outlook I, I was really kind of moved by it that said the latest that we've heard in Floyd's case is that um the attorney general's office in Kansas is opposing his compensation in many states when you are exonerated the process then for getting what they call in Kansas the certificate of innocence which you need to apply for compensation, is basically retrial proceedings all over again. So it's an incredibly onerous process on anyone. And so, yeah, Floyd's Floyd's lawyers, where we're at with that is um, his lawyers have petitioned the court to um, to demand that they pay the compensation that, that Floyd is owed. One thing we talked about earlier was plea deals and how common they are in the criminal justice system generally. Very few cases, as you pointed out to me, go to trial. People often will plea out or plea down in hopes of avoiding the worst case scenario. But one thing that I, having, despite having worked in the criminal justice space as a journalist for a long time, knew basically nothing about was what's called an Alford plea. And I wonder if you could explain what that is and how it factors into this larger problem. So an Alford plea is a rare um, type of guilty plea, right? People think that you know, all guilty pleas are the same. An offered plea is one where you get to maintain your innocence, but you still keep a criminal record. So, you know, you say I'm innocent for this crime, but I don't want to go to trial or I don't want to wait in jail anymore until I'm proven innocent. So I'm just going to take this plea, 
get out earlier, but you still get a criminal record. So you still, you know, you have that when you're trying to find a job. There's limitations to it. So it's a rare plea because a lot of people don't know about the fact that, you know, you get to maintain your innocence, but you still have this criminal record on your file. And one of our characters for the Offered Pleas episode is Leroy Harris. And his case was really interesting because he had been in jail for 29 years. So when he heard of the possibility of taking an offered plea, it was a no-brainer for him. He got to get out of jail and be with his family, and he just went for it. The expert that we spoke to, the founder of the Innocence Project, said, you know, this usually happens with people that have been in jail for 20 or 30 years, and they get offered something like this, and, you know, for them it's a no-brainer. That's what Leroy told us. He said, you know, I get the chance to just get out, be with my family after 29 years in jail. I just want to get out, and I don't care what the consequences are. So what Barry, the founder of the Innocence Project, told us is we believe that you sh- you should not plead guilty unless you're guilty. And if you're not guilty, you should have the right to go to trial. And this is something that's disappearing because they, you know, they think the risk of going to trial They had a bad trial before they were wrongfully convicted. Why are they going to risk going again to another trial? So this is something that shouldn't happen, but it happens, again, more often than we want to believe. I think Americans are more aware of the problems former inmates face reintegrating into society than they were 10 or 20 years ago. A lot of us have heard about campaigns like Ban the Box to discourage discrimination in jobs and education and housing, but it struck me that even if you've been exonerated, there are long-term impacts that are going to shape your life when it comes to those very fundamental questions we all have to deal with. And I wonder if you could talk at all about even leaving aside the broader question of compensation for the time you did behind bars, how a wrongful conviction follows you. I think personally for, you know, our main character for the reintegration episode, we spoke to his social worker and, you know, she basically told us the stigma of having been in jail follows our clients around forever. And, you know, they're always going to have to explain where they've been for the last 20 or 30 years. You know, even when you are trying to get approval for a housing, you have your, you know, your landlord will say, okay, well, what's your previous housing experience? What are you going to say the correctional facility of New York, whatever? So... It's something that they constantly have to explain to people. They don't have, you know, previous job experience. They don't have, well, they do, but it's inside prison. So that's something that even if they're exonerated, they're still looked at as, oh, you know, but you were in jail for 30 years. So that's definitely something that follows them around. And not only professionally and for their, you know, their lives and as, you know, for housing and stuff, but also personally, they have this post-prison trauma where, you know, if you're accused of a sexual assault, um, you know, our our main character, Gregory Counts, he said, when I get in an elevator with a white woman, I'm more scared than she is. Or he's scared of throwing a can in the garbage because they'll use that DNA to wrongfully convict him. Or he gets really anxious when he's in the subway because he feels like someone's going to stab him because he's in jail. Or he's afraid to leave his room because he's used to small spaces. So it's not only how hard it is for them to get a job or get a house, it's also, you know, how traumatizing it is for them to readjust. Yeah, I just want to add on to that as well. Like, I think it's the really little everyday things that we maybe wouldn't consider. Like, we're all attached to our phones 24-7. If you live in a big city, you take the subway to get to work. You, uh, you know, kind of, if you live in New York City like we do, fighting your way to get to work every morning on the train. These are the things that 
we are used to, but that can be incredibly overwhelming for someone who has spent the last 20 years in prison. And so coming out, I know that um, that Greg Counts, for example, you know, he said that public transit was a really, really tough one for him. And just getting into the routine of taking the train to work, the, the holding down a job that is not part of the routine that you've had for the last 20 or 30 years, that takes a lot of readjusting. And maybe the society that you are reintegrating into isn't aware of that or or isn't that forgiving of that. You obviously collaborated really closely with the Innocence Project, which is at the forefront of advocacy and activism on this issue. I wonder what's your sense of whether it's groups like them or others or individuals, what activists and advocates are most focused on right now when it comes to the problem of wrongful conviction and what happens to folks when they're exonerated, and also where you see those policies going from here, what kinds of changes you think are plausible? Look, so I think one of the wonderful things about the Innocence Project and the way that they're structured is they have these departments that are set up to really be able to focus on individual issues. So for our forensics episode, you know, I had a point of contact there, and that's what she does. She focuses on legislative um, efforts for for, de- for dealing with the flaws in our forensic field. Same with compensation. You know, it, it's so I think to limit it to one thing that they're focusing on wouldn't do justice to kind of the work that they're doing. But I will say that going into the midterms as we are next week, they're a nonprofit. They can't endorse candidates, of course, but uh, they can endorse policies. And I know that certain things like getting the word out there that in some states and counties you vote for your DA uh, for your district attorney at the ballot box so making people aware of that and and realizing that some of the people who play really pivotal roles in this system are people that we vote in into those positions so I think creating real tangible actionable things like that is something that's a priority for them and then I think Definitely when it came to compensation and the episode that we did there in Kansas, the Midwest Innocence Project was um, it was uh, Trisha Bushnell and actually another lawyer for, for another client outside of the Innocence Project. They were really instrumental in getting that legislation passed. So I think those would be two that kind of really jumped to mind. But I think that they're working on a whole set of issues year round. But I do think that going into the midterms, this is... That's something that that people should be aware of and kind of keeping on their mind. Make sure to watch the full series online at vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now.